All right, welcome back, listeners. Uh, we're here with our guest for this week on episode number three. It is Sean McGrath. He is this season the AA Arkansas pitching coach uh, with the Seattle Mariners organization. He's been with Seattle now for, I believe, three or four seasons. Prior to that, he was the pitching coach at Elon as well as some other organizations. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself to the listeners a little bit. Who are you? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about how you got here. Thanks, Jeff. Um, yeah, I am now in my third season with Seattle Mariners. It's been a really tremendous opportunity, but grew up in New Jersey, spent most of my life in New Jersey and played my college baseball at Lafayette College and Patriot League. When I got done playing um, college ball, I, I played a season of independent ball and was actually, you know, just just okay, mediocre. I was reliable because I'd take the ball, um, but, you know, wasn't good enough to, you know, do anything with my career. And, and the one thing I did have an affinity for was, you know, the art of pitching, understanding pitching, what made pitchers better, um, that sort of thing. And so even as a player, I was trying to teach myself, um, you know, be my own best coach, trying to make myself better. And I knew I had a passion for coaching about halfway through my college career. And so I had re-signed to play um, in, in the Can-Am League, independent baseball again. And meanwhile, I was shooting out emails, texts to coaches in the tri-state area who had recruited me, you know, looking for volunteer opportunities. And Pat Carey from Iona, um, the head coach at the time, reached out and, um, you know, he said to me, you know, Hey, I, I have an opening for my pitching coach position. Would you like to interview? And here I am, 22 years old, going like, no way he's going to hand me over the keys to the car, you know. And but I said, let me interview. Be a great experience. Um, you know, it, let let me see how I can navigate this thing. And went on the interview. Thought I did well. You know, I was really freaking nervous. Um, a couple of days later, he called me and offered me the job. And, and uh, you know, I spent that year, maybe the next two or three years as the youngest pitching coach in Division One baseball and um, really just got quite lucky because it was a part time opportunity. Um, so, you know, most of the Northeast deals with issues like that, just, you know, staff and, and how much they could pay their staff and and that type of thing. So got really lucky to be in the region of the country I was in um, and was even more lucky that I emailed the right guy at the right time, um, you know, reached out and he had just, his pitching coach had just moved on. So I kind of, you know, I, I consider myself one of the luckiest people in baseball. And I know a lot of stories go like that um, where you got lucky. It was somebody you knew he had recruited me a little bit, um, but really do consider myself blessed to have that opportunity. Yeah, well, you know, it's what uh, one of my first bosses when I first got out of college used to say is, you know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about that, though. I mean, what do you think your advantages were um, maybe as a younger guy coming in? Um, do you feel like there were maybe some preconceived notions, some things that you were willing to explore maybe that others weren't? Um, was it just, you know, an attitude thing? I mean, because there's always 
there's always those things when somebody gets into an opportunity like that and then continues to grow and, and evolve. Um, there's always a, you know, a baseline of attitude or just approach, I think, that maybe separates themselves from others. So, no, it's obviously, you know, going in about yourself, but, you know, what do you feel has allowed you to continue to grow, you know, as a, as a coach over the years? I, I think it's, it's this idea that um, not being the best player, I was, con like I alluded to earlier, I was constantly searching for ideas and specifically newer ideas, right? Like what is somebody else not on that could give me the edge? Um, and the baseball community, the, the information that's out there to the public, um, especially now, but even back then in 2012, 2013, it, it's phenomenal. The things you could teach yourself um, just with information that's good for free is, is mind blowing. And so, you know, I think when I combined this, you know, unique perspective, you know, having just played college baseball, um, and then, you know, understanding that I was not yet the pitching coach I wanted to be, and I was going to learn and I was going to give players the best version of myself as often as I can. And understanding I didn't have all the answers. I think it allowed me to um, really put the ego down, um, you know, kind of push my pride to the side and call people who had been in the game a little bit longer, start to develop relationships, um, you know, reached out to Kyle Bodie to explore weighted balls, um, really anything I could to better understand the game of baseball, you know, pitching specifically and, you know, to give my players a better opportunity to succeed. Now, do you think, um, you know, your time at, at, you know, Iona before, you know, moving on to Elon and you know, now with Seattle, um, I think a lot of times when people first get, you know, any, any job, right. It's not just a pitching coach job, but you start to like define your style and you start to take these little things that you're learning and put it together. And, you know, that kind of becomes like, all right, this is the foundation of, you know, what my focus is and, and what I believe in, you know, what I do. Um, is the, is there, is there some things or like some major sort of pillars to, you know, how you approach pitching, how you approach coaching that you learned, you know, with that first gig? Yeah, um, certainly. I, what I learned was that everybody is unique, um, you know, unique in their delivery, unique in their style of pitching. We now know, you know, pitch shapes and, and that sort of thing, but I understood. And the one thing I craved as a player was that I, I was going to try to meet the needs of the individual as opposed to like packaging, you know, this is Sean McGrath. This is what we're going to do and that be it. And so I, I learned as much as I could about practically everything, you know, and at times it felt like everything and nothing with the rabbit holes I'd go down. Um, but you know, it was this understanding that like we needed to do the things we have always needed to do in this game to be successful. We needed to, you know, win OO counts, one one counts, be able to push the game, you know, sway it to our advantage, create our own luck, luck if you would. Um, and then understanding that like we needed to devote a good amount of time. Um on developing the individual, you know, both the person and, and the player. And, you know, from there, you know, we created relationships and within those relationships came trust, 
the ability to give truth um, and have that hard conversation. Um, and I think that's what that's what players throughout, especially you know when I was young, the one thing I was able to do was was to provide truth um, and to give accurate feedback to the best of my ability. Um, and so they, knowing that coming in, they were able to take what I was saying and not get defensive um, or try not to get defensive and really understand that I was trying to help them. And that's uh, what's most important, right? At the end of the day is, you know, being able to communicate and uh, have that sort of two-way communication, understanding and trust that somebody can take information you're giving to them, even if it's a hard truth, and then turn that into something that can potentially make them better at their gig, right? That's what this whole show is about. But, you know, I know I've mentioned your background, your Iona, sort of what's the next step? How long are you there? And then, you know, what's the next job? And, and talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so from Iona, I actually had a little bit of a stopgap in coaching. I went um, and was hired essentially to be the scout scouting director or yeah scouting director of the state of new jersey for prep baseball report essentially mm -hmm. tried to kick baseball prep baseball report off in the state of new jersey i did that for about six months um when i received a call from ken herring the head baseball coach at umass lowell um who had just completed their transition from division two to division one um about their pitching coach opportunity and um, you know, off I went to Lowell, Massachusetts, where I spent two years, um, you know, had a really, really tremendous time for two years. Uh, Ken Herring was was a really good boss in that he really it gave you full autonomy, allowed you to do what you wanted to do. Um, and that is really where my growth started taking off, because now, you know, the programming side of development really became my own like understanding how to program for the things that mattered most, uh, whether it be, you know, pitcher velocity, pitch execution, um, you know, started to dive in then to pitch shapes and understanding, you know, what was a good fastball, what made a good fastball, what, what was a good slider, what should we target within this guy's arsenal that could make him better. Um, I really learned a lot of, those things through trial and error, um, you know, some failure, some success. Um, and after those two years, headed down to Elon down here in North Carolina, um, where I spent two years. And, and that was a terrific opportunity. The people there are incredible. And, you know, I couldn't be more thankful for my time there. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because it seems like, you know, there have been some big players. We don't have to get into that. Big players. But also, you know, yourself, I know um, Kyle Cesarian, who I believe is with Virginia Tech now, had been with Team USA, unless he's maybe gotten even a bigger job. And there's a couple other guys that have come from that Elon, you know, sort of baseball department, I'll call it. Um, what was it about the culture at that time that was able to develop so many guys that have then gone on to be successful either as players or within the game of baseball? Because Elon, I think to most people is a, it's a fairly, you know, unknown division one program, a smaller school, obviously right in a hotbed of baseball. So that probably helps a little bit and they've had some good players, but um, I, when you look back on it, and I think we will in a few years and say, wow, there was a lot of talent that came out of this mid major and they really embraced some of the stuff that was at the cutting edge 
before some even bigger programs did that frankly probably still haven't embraced it so what was going on there i mean and, and was that what attracted you to elon initially when you got that job um what attracted me and, and really probably what drives the entire shit you just spoke about is the one constant that's been at elon for i guess now 24 or 25 years and that would be mike kennedy um he was the uh, it's hard to say he, he is incredible at demanding the most out of his staff and his players but in a unique way where he never feels like he's on top of you um i guess you could say he provides these guardrails for you to be really become the best version of yourself um and we spoke earlier about like providing hard truths and being a really effective communicator. And those are two of his incredible strengths. Um, and so, you know, when you have such a constant in a program with a head coach like that, um, and you combine that with his ability to communicate and tell the truth, you, you end up with this really stable culture. Um, one that demands excellence and, and doesn't settle for less. And so he really, you know, my growth as an individual and as a coach really happened in those two years at Elon. He is, he taught me how to be a better communicator. Um, he taught me how to get to the point and, and to get to the point quicker. And he really just allowed me to work within his framework, if that makes sense. So, you know, he provide those guardrails. He would tell me, hey, you know, he would ask the question why all the time, you know, which challenged me to have to support um, my reasons for doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, at this time we were getting into technology, we were getting into data, we were moving into that space, we were moving in that direction. And, um, you know, I, I drove some of that and he was all for it as long as I was able to answer the why. And I think that challenge he constantly presents his staff and his players is, is what makes that program really a, a terrific mid-major program. One that's, you know, won a lot of games and, and will continue to win a lot of games no matter which direction they go in, you know, developmentally. So he really, he brings out the best in people. Great um, yeah. And then speaking a little bit more toward like, how did we push into this? newer space of, of data and technology uh it was kind of like a whirlwind that all came together at one time where um we had a bunch of draft prospects you know highly touted guys team usa guys you know future first rounders top 10 rounders and we were presented we were given um opportunity to work with flight scope um and so we were given a flight scope which really um you know let us down some rabbit holes. And, you know, me personally, I knew I couldn't sort through all of this stuff myself. And Professor Mark Cryan at Elon actually had a baseball analytics group for a couple of years there at the time. And he still has it. It's a tremendous group um, who I speak with once in a while. And we reached out to him and said, hey, do you have any any guys in your group, in your analytics group who would love to come and work with us, you know, work hands-on with a coaching staff, with with players to help us push the needle, you know, move the needle and, and push us forward. And guys like Kyle Sarazin, who's not, like you said, is now at Vatech. Um, 
Um, Daniel Tucker, who is, you know, I think a young freshman or sophomore at the time, just got a job in professional baseball. Guys like those came over and my my office became our office. Um, and so we started to stumble on things that were important, things that were meaningful. Um, and it was no longer data, but it was actionable. Um, you know, we had pitching portals, we had hitting portals. Um, you know, they were taking really complex data, um, you know, that spreadsheet of data you could see after after a game, you know, pulling it from FlightScope or TrackMan. And they were giving it up to us in such an actionable way that, um, you know, it made our post-outing debriefs easy. It made our, um, you know, review process, our development process so much. Uh, it was like a well-oiled machine. It was awesome. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is I've, you know, done these. It's it's the, the best experiences with information and then development seem to be like that streamlined communication between, you know, coaches and analysts and players and, you know, everybody that's within the organization, obviously the professional level might be scouts and, and et cetera. Um, I'm interested to kind of jump forward now a little. So let's talk about the transition because you, you end up at Seattle, obviously. The transition from the collegiate, the amateur side of the game to the professional side of the game, how big of a transition was it? And were there any sort of like welcome to pro ball sort of moments that were a staunch contrast to the way things had gone at Elon? Yeah, I, I there are definitely differences. Um, and I say that, and at the end of the day, baseball is baseball, and and you know you need to throw a strike one. We need to get outs and and that sort of thing. But um, it's this idea that college, first of all, the the seasons were segmented, right? So the fall was development, the um, the season was about producing, producing wins, um, and then the summer was uniquely tailored to the player, whether it was going to be, hey, this is your opportunity to showcase yourself for the draft or to continue working on the things we worked on throughout the fall. Um, and so trying to best explain it, I guess when you think about it is like 24 by 24, understanding, you know, it's a, what's important in these 24 hours and 24 months college is heavily weighted on what's important in these 24 hours because you need to produce and you need to win games where professional baseball, if you take that same 24 by 24, um, you know, the, what happens tonight in, in double A is certainly important. It's definitely important, but we don't need you to be the best version of yourself here tonight in Arkansas. We need you to be, way closer to the better best version of yourself we, you need to be better in two years when you're in the big leagues in seattle um and so that understanding the delicate balance between 24 hours and 24 months in professional baseball it's much more real where you, you have to look at you know what's going to make this guy the best big leaguer he could be while still trying to get him to you know focus and get the most out of himself tonight in the game. But um, those were the real big differences. The, the other big difference for me was as a coach in college, you are really, you know, you are, the, you are the scout for all intents and purposes. You are the one recruiting these players. 
And so at times you could fall into a little bit of a fixed mindset. You start recruiting the pitcher who fits well with your strengths. You know, I know there were certain pitchers who had certain practice routines that I would stay away from simply because it wasn't my strength. Um, where there were other guys where I'd, you know, I'd look at them and I, maybe they weren't where they needed to be, but I knew with my strengths, we can move this guy. We could progress this guy forward where in professional baseball, you're obviously still scouting and drafting, um, you know, to fit what your organization does well. Um, you know, is this an arm we're willing to take on? Is this an arm we want to take on? Um, that sort of thing. But you have to, you're challenged every day to be so growth mindset oriented that you need to be able to cover whether a guy has trained at top velocity or driveline or the baseball ranch, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's no, you know, this is, you know, like we talked about earlier, this is Sean McGrath's way. You really, really are challenged to know a little bit of everything and, to be willing to say, like, I don't have the answer right now, but I'm going to find it out and let's talk about it. Yeah. And I think that's the right way to be for sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about Seattle and specifically some of the things that um, you guys have gotten suppressed for, but also had success with. And I think that um, one of the things that at least I find to be sort of synonymous with this current regime and period uh, in, in you know Seattle Mariners history and particularly with the organization's farm system is velocity. There's a lot of pitchers that seem like they've come into the organization and have made considerable gains, you know, even if it's only a few ticks every year in that area without sacrificing command control. And I think the big thing is pitch shape because there's a lot of guys within your organization right now, especially in the minor league level, that I find to have really fascinating fastballs in particular. Um, so I'm interested in a few things. Number one, what is gas camp? Talk to us a little bit about that and what sort of training you're doing. The other thing is, are there characteristics that as an organization, Seattle values highly at the amateur level that they're then targeting because they know, hey, our player dev guys have the ability to take a guy that does the X, Y, and Z and turn him into ABC. Maybe there's no answer there, but I'm kind of interested in terms of, you know, what the application is for those that might be watching too. But talk to me a little bit about what Seattle's doing initially, and then we'll get into that. Yeah, I, I think our our strength is really, um, you know, like you mentioned this regime, I think what the organization has done is it broke down the artificial walls that existed between I don't know, PD and high performance, high performance in the training room, um, the analytics group and PD, so on and so forth. And so when we look into a player, um, you know, it's it's an inclusive effort. Everyone, it takes everyone involved to understand, you know, is this guy, you know, at the amateur level, you know, our scouts might identify him as you know, a potential pick or whatever. And, you know, it takes analytics to understand, well, yeah, this guy is 88-91. Our ability to program and get more velocity out of guys is going to allow this guy to be a 92-94 version of himself with these really incredible pitch shapes. Um, 
and so on and so forth. And so with the breaking down of these walls or these barriers that exist sometimes between development groups, um, you're really able to get a more, I, I hate to use the buzz, buzzword, but like a more holistic form of development where, you know, it's not the pitching coach trying to strive to get velocity, more velocity out of the guy. It's a, you know, now the pitching coach is running, you know, to the HP group, run to the strength coach and saying like, what are we seeing in his movement patterns? Um, you know, what does his movement screen look like? Is there any way to groove movement patterns in the way? Um, so that he doesn't have to focus and sacrifice too much command um, and things like that. And so, Guys go through routines that include movement prep, um, you know, athletic throwing programs where they are subtly challenging themselves to make practice harder in the game. Um, different things in their programming um, throughout the year that would inspire more velocity, things like that of that nature. Um, and then secondly, I, I think it's exactly what you're talking about with gas camp and now it's dominating the zone. Um, camp and, and high performance camp, they're, they're flagging and identifying guys to come to these camps who we know can handle additional stresses. We know there is, you know, a tremendous value to one to two miles an hour gained, um, you know, and it's different for every guy. Um, you know, two miles an hour on one guy um, might not move the needle that much, but given you know, another guy's pitch shapes and, and his arsenal, two miles an hour might move the needle a whole lot. So um, the identification process and then the ability to carry those things out through initiatives like high performance camp and dominating the zone camp, which used to be gas camp, um, those initiatives have really moved the organization forward. and. and it's the reason these guys go and, and incrementally gain velocity and they do it in a healthy in a healthy way, which which a little bit more organically. Sometimes it's as easy as identifying a guy as a weight gainer or weight loser. Um, another another guy you might have to go in and dive a little bit deeper and, and say, okay, well, you know, he has a movement deficiency in his left hip both externally and internally, let's attack that in the training room, in the weight room, while blending certain movement patterns on the field through athletic movements. Um, it's the understanding that all of it works together and the pitching coach now serves as like at their affiliate as like the crew chief, right? Where um, traditionally he would have been the end all be all, like can this pitching coach get velocity on a guy now it's it's okay he's the crew chief he's identifying this this and this you know let's go to our analytics group let's go to our high performance group um let's put all of this together and see the area of growth where can we make the most bang for our buck yeah that's tremendous and i think the success so far is as spoke for itself and you know, we'll see as it you know continues to happen over the the coming years, and we see a lot of these guys at the major league level uh, have success with a very competitive club that's only getting better, and you know just got ranked as our number one farm system. So you have that going for you to boot. Um, I guess on a more basic level, 
kind of staying in the same tenor. What are some of the most um, important characteristics or qualities that a starting pitcher needs to possess? Because I feel like as we break down, you know, in our offseason, you know, relief risk, starting pitcher risk, and there's a lot of valuable relievers. But there's so few pitching prospects that do sort of end up as starters. In your years having worked with these guys, what are some of the qualities you feel are most important for someone to, you know, maintain that profile as a starter? Yeah, I would say a number one would be durability, right? Both throughout a game, um, you know, are they able to hold the same stuff in the fifth inning, sixth inning as they were in the first, um, you know, are pitch shapes changing dramatically or, or are they worsening as the game progresses? Um, and then throughout a season, can they handle, you know, 160 inning, 180 inning workload um, year in and year out? Um, and some of those answers are given over time, you know, and that's when guys prove to be relievers or can't sustain as a starter. Um, but then, man, the, the, one quality I see in all of our, our our best starters and our best starter profiles at the minor league level is how well do they manage the 15 seconds between pitches? Like, how are they able to get back to the present moment and commit to this pitch and not worry about the next pitch or, or the last pitch? Um, so it's the idea that they are incredible game managers, um, you know, but not in the traditional sense, but in a pitch to pitch you know, get back to the present, commit to this pitch right now, um, that sort of thing. And it's the idea that, like, at the end of the day, the starters are going to be able to throw a higher percentage of quality pitches over 100 pitches, let's say. Um, you know, the idea that, like, their their stuff is good enough, their action's good enough, and they consistently throw it to the intended location better than other guys um and so working within that framework i think guys kind of you know weed themselves out um you know of the starter mix of the starter profile become relievers and then there's times where guys you know they come with reliever risks uh, we have some in the org you know maybe it's a crossfire delivery how is the the frame going to hold up that sort of thing um, that people question and, you know, they're throwing quality pitches at an alarmingly high rate, um, producing results each and every start, every fifth or sixth day um, that kind of bucked the trend, right? Um, the traditional trend was you had to be 6'3 and, and, you know, 205, you know, with this pristine delivery, what we, what we now know is, you know, that's that might not be the case all the time. There's big leaguers right now who who don't fit the bill of a traditional starter who are exceptional starters. Um, you know, and the understanding too that you know traditionally, you know, starters needed three or four pitches, um, you know, have a more diverse arsenal, you know, that still holds true to some degree. You know, having a diverse arsenal will allow you to go more times through the order, maybe. Um but now with the way bullpens are constructed, the way staff pitching staffs are constructed, we're not asking starters to do what they did 15, 20 years ago. Um, we're asking now to commit to one pitch at a time for, you know, as long as they can. Um, and 
you know, you see more two pitch starters in the big leagues who are throwing their two primary pitches, you know, 90 plus percent of the time. Um, and so they're kind of bucking some of these old trends. Um, some of, some of those old, you know, this is what a starter looks like. Um, and so I think we're, we're starting to see more and more guys capable of starting. It's just, man, can they manage the 15 seconds between pitches and can they throw quality pitches? Can they throw their intended shape to, you know, a desired location? And that's what it comes down to. And that's a really interesting takeaway for, for me, even, um, you know, in terms of how they manage those 15 seconds in between and watching amateur pitchers. And there were guys that stuck out to me that were like, yeah, that guy's really inconsistent. As you were saying it, that guy was really inconsistent on the Cape versus, you know, this other player who had a ton of consistency. And a lot of it was how cool his demeanor was, how easily he got back into the zone, got focused, maybe didn't get hung up on a good call or a bad call. Right. Um, you know, all that stuff is is super important. So, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And I think the other thing, too, is, um, you know, I'm I'm a proponent of, you know, if you have two sevens, that's a lot better than having four forty fives, you know, um, no doubt. So, and it works like that. I mean, even dating back to the 1970s I mean, a guy like Nolan Ryan, primarily until he learned to change up was like a two pitch guy, you know, um, and I think sometimes that stuff gets lost that you know, if you're dominant enough and you accentuate your your positive attributes enough, um, sometimes it becomes a bonus, which, you know, I'm a big, also a big guy on like short right-handed pitchers. And we saw, you know, a short right-handed pitcher get a ton of money uh, in the draft last year in Jack Leiter. And there's been a few over the last couple of years too. So um, I think, you know, you're right there that we're starting to learn a little bit that, hey, maybe some of these traditional things of having that six, four, you know, lefty or whatever that throws downhill isn't always necessarily good um and sometimes those guys got a little bit overrated and maybe pushed up um i think we're getting better at evaluating pitchers in general so um agree with you there so let's move on to the next thing we've, we've learned a lot of stuff kind of wrapping things up here a little bit what do you think is next i mean what what can't you identify now or quantify now that you want to be able to quantify within pitchers that you're like i know last week we had chris langan on um from driveline he's their pitching coordinator and his big thing was metrics and a way to really measure deception besides we don't understand why this works it's deceptive he's like now we're picking out you know things like vertical approach angle and you know some of that stuff but there's even more to it than we realize and i thought that was an interesting answer so is there anything along those lines that you're like i really wish that we could identify this so that I could quantify it, so that I could teach it. Yeah, I, my brain, and, and it's been um, on my mind for years, but my brain immediately went to deception when you asked the question. Um, and we now know what 10 years ago they didn't, right? Like they used to just say, man, that ball jumps out of his hand or, or you know, now we know it's it might be, you know, some uphill plane, some vertical approach angle. Um, induced vertical break, you know, this guy's got a ton of ride. We understand those things now, but when I speak about it, I'm speaking about like a pitcher's actual delivery, you know, when a pitch or an arsenal of pitches is consistently outplaying or underplaying our projected, you know, measures. Um, and understanding that, you know, Everyone in the public space tries to take a stab at deception. We don't really have any one answer. And it always leads me back to 
an article that Jeff Long wrote, um, you know, maybe five or six years ago, where he said the art of deception is deceptively complex. Um, and, and that always sticks to me, uh, with me, he wrote, you know, this really tremendous article with a bunch of exercises inside of it and a bunch of like brain teasers. And you realize like, man, deception's really tough. Um, and so to be able to, with Hawkeye or Simi, some of these, um, technologies out there, be able to quantify and make it actionable for coaches, you know, the, how well does this guy hide the ball? Um, or, you know, some of the things you traditionally would only get from a hitter, you ask a hitter and you say, man, you know, the elevated glove side, it looks like the ball's shooting out of nowhere. Um, and, and still a really tremendous form of feedback to rely on your hitters who are tracking or catchers. Um, but to be able to quantify it and, and perhaps teach it, I think would be a tremendous next step for baseball be, because we've taken so many steps forward here in the, in the last five, 10 years. Um, different guys, you know, Kyle Bodie and driveline and, and Ron Wolforth, you know, Florida baseball wrench. These guys have pushed the game forward in tremendous ways. Um, you know, I would love for somebody to, you know, be able to give us some, some feedback on this um, because I think it, it could be the edge. It could be an edge. It could be, you know, something that drives this game forward because there's guys who underperform, you know, expected measures. And, you know, the one idea I've always had is, you know, a pitcher who is aesthetically uh, aesthetically pleasing to the eye when you're watching him throw or watching him pitch. Um, is it also aesthetically pleasing for a hitter? Mm -hmm. And does that settle a hitter and allow him to see the ball better? And then conversely, you know, your herky jerky guys, your guys with the really high glove sides or, or, you know, the stab in the back, um, you can't yep. pick the ball up. Those types of guys, you know, are, because they're not aesthetically pleasing to, to watch and to view, um, you know, does that now make it hard to hit? You know, it's, it's such a complex idea that if someone can nail this thing down and give us some answers, man, I, I think we'd all be pretty excited. Yeah, no, that's, that's spot on. And I think, um, you know, you're right too. And there's other guys I'm going to actually bring it once we get off air here in a minute, I have like two guys that in particular came came to mind on that um and i think sometimes it's timing like i feel like there are guys who i like to watch them throw right like you said it's very smooth it's very easy um more often than not a lot of them are you know more like vertical releases more over the top type of arm actions and slots and um it's it's remarkable like that you said that because i feel like you watch those guys sometimes and i'm like but it's probably just as easy for the hitter to, to time it up because it's easy to follow the ball from glove break to release, right? Where when there's something funky that happens in there, it throws off your timing. It throws you off a little bit. I mean, it's why, you know, for years, guys have, you know, messed with their delivery. We've seen it more um, frequently in the major league level with like Johnny Cueto and guy like that. But there's plenty of pitchers that do that, obviously, at every level of, of the game. But that's the reason they're doing it, right? Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think you might, you might be onto something there. That's really interesting. So Sean, the end of the interview, I appreciate your time today. Uh, best of luck going forward into the season when we get started here, hopefully sooner rather than later. And, uh, you know, once again, thanks for chatting with us, man. 
Thanks for having me. I, you know, this type of stuff is always awesome. I, I enjoy it myself. So appreciate you having me. Oh,